wants to spin the wheel or throw the dice, we don't get to move them. So we want to decide where they are. If you have a philosophical inclination or an intellectual inclination, there's a, there's a thing in the spiritual kingdom called paradoxes. A lot of times guys like to sit around and think about uh, paradoxes. One of those that was brought up a long time ago is a statement that uh, says, can God build a rock he can't move? And of course, the intent of that was, uh, one of the intents, at least on the negative side of that was, philosophically speaking, if you can establish that, uh, that that's true, that there's something that God cannot do, then he's not all-powerful, and therefore he's not God, and therefore you've disproved him. But I want to suggest to you, and, and give you even a very brief list of the, of the things that God cannot do. And you can uh, take these references down. I'm not going to spend any time. I'm not going to try to elaborate on them. That's a little beyond my capacity. But I want you to take these things down and think about them. You change your pants. He's not going to change his pants in his own living room. <laughs> he kicks off his shoes, and he wakes up in no shoes. And he says, where are my shoes? She says, they are in the closet where they belong. Now, where do shoes belong? Or how do you read a newspaper? My wife had a newspaper all over the house, and I thought I'd teach her by example, so I'd keep putting it together, and it dawned on me, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't mind me putting it together, but she's not going to quit. Well, you see, what I'm trying to say is that housekeeping can create all kinds of reasons for having a little meeting. And what we're talking about is two nice people, a nice man and a nice lady. If you haven't got that, you're not going to solve your problem, mister. You just got an enormous number of decisions to make. I'm trying to tell you that marriage, the, the, the key to an effective marriage is decision-making. And the, uh, the purpose of decision-making is to bring, get your minds together. Now, you don't have to do things physically together, as I'm trying to say. You don't have to play tennis together. I can play tennis and my wife doesn't need to, and we agree that that's the way it should be. But we're, we're not doing anything together, but our minds are together. Be like-minded. Now, you'll see this all through the scriptures. Get your minds together. Be of the same mind one toward another. So that's the goal, then. Two nice people getting their minds together. And I want to tell you, that's a lifetime job. You, you never solve these problems. Remember when you were first married and all you had was the two of you and about the time you got used to the two of you, she got pregnant? It's, it's not the same deal. Living with a pregnant woman, you got to change the rules. Right? And about the time you get used to this pregnant woman, you don't got a pregnant woman. Yeah, you've got a baby, and that, that, that changes it forever. Now what are you going to do with this baby and, and, and a wife? And, and, and about the time you're used to the baby, you haven't got a baby. Now the kid is crawling around. Then you have a toddler, and by then you got a toddler, and she's pregnant again. Now you've got a pregnant wife and a toddler. <laughs> and, and maybe you got a promotion or a demotion at the same time. 
And so your responsibilities are, are increasing outside the family. And, uh, uh, and I see when you get married, you start a ball rolling that keeps changing, and you can't stop it. But you have to change with it. I see you spend eight hours a day at least working on your business. And yet so many of us assume that we can just, that our marriage just happens. Now the managing partner is the one that's got to be aware of the issues that come up that need to be solved in this relationship. That's what managing partner does in a business. And here was this kid, managing partner of a, of a law firm of a couple of dozen people, and the only reason that he was the managing partner was that the owners didn't want to manage it. So they delegated it to him. But that's all he was doing was managing it. They were calling the shots. And so there the two of you are, and you're the managing partner, and whether your partner is reluctant or, or cooperative, it doesn't make any difference. That's your outfit, and that's what you got to work with. You've got a lot of things to negotiate, and about the time you solve some of them, the, your, your decision is obsolete. And you've got to make, you have to, you, know, you see so often these negotiations are at the point where you're tired, or you're mad, or you're stubborn, or you're rebellious, or you're disgusted, uh, and the, this scripture is saying that's not the time to negotiate. Negotiation requires a couple of people, a man and a woman, called a husband and a wife, who draw their strength not from the marriage, but from God. And that's what allows you to function together as a husband and a wife. You see, I cannot be writing my lack of, my meanness toward my wife off on the fact that it's my wife's fault that I mean. Now, she may have some faults, but my meanness isn't, she can't, she just can't do that to me unless I'm not walking with the Lord. All she does is let me know what my spiritual life is like. She is not the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say to you that a good marriage is not a substitute for the Holy Spirit. Good family life is not a substitute for the fact that your children need to be saved. So we have to, we have to know what we can expect and what we can't expect from a good family life, or how to get there in the first place, a good family life. And so there's money, and there's food, and there's housekeeping, and you can't avoid those. And they keep shifting, and they keep changing. Now, there, there are some others. Church. How are you going to involve yourself in church? And how is she going to involve herself in church? And this involves the children. And that requires decisions, 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 decisions. You don't function independently here. You function cooperatively. You don't just... You know, one, one lady was saying, my, my husband just does things uh, uh, compulsively. Like all of a sudden he, he pops up, we're going to change churches. So I talk to him and I discover that he's been thinking about changing churches and studying churches for a couple of months in his own head. And when he concludes what he's going to do, then he announces it to his wife and she thinks he's acting compulsively. 
But you see, he has not involved her in the decision-making process. He has just given her the result of his decision. And so we're talking, when we talk about communication, what are we talking about? We're talking about two people in a partnership working together to make mutually agreeable decisions that represents a meeting of minds. And, and uh, gentlemen, that, that takes just as much concentration and work and daily effort as your job. Isn't it, it's no wonder that some of us uh, are not enjoying our marriage because we aren't managing it. Children. And we'll, I'll try and, I hope I get there. I'm racing a clock here. But we got a lot of decisions to be made about children, don't we? And you need to come to a meeting of minds about children. In-laws. And then there is your social life. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's long, tremendously long list of decisions that you, that you have created, uh, issues that you have created just because you got married. And, but often we just function individually as though we weren't married. Now you see, you are the managing partner. And many times when you're the managing partner and you see something that needs to be changed in the organization, you've got to convince the other people that this should be changed. You can't just change it because you want to change it. And so there is negotiation and reflection, knowing each other's minds, But there's a, hit, there's a hitch. And the hitch is that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Sometimes we will make agreements and we don't keep them. Or we are going to do our own thing and we're going to do our own thing no matter what and you let the chips fly where they may. Now let me give... Oh, it's, time to, it's time to take a break. Now before we take a break, let me call your attention to the fact that uh, if you're interested in some of these things that I'm talking about, if you want to know something about managing your own inner life, there's a book down there called I Want Happiness Now. And that talks about that. There's another one called I Want My Marriage to Be Better. And another one I want to enjoy my children. Now I'm going to be touching on these. And these books are six bucks a piece and they're down in the dining room, I think. If you don't like to read, I have some tapes. <laughs> this is a set of six. And it's in three sections. One is managing your personal life. The other is managing your marriage. And the third is managing your family. And this set of six is 24 bucks as, as long as they last, they're down there. So I make you aware of that. Uh, you will retain a little bit of what I'm telling you, but you can reflect for a long time if you take the printed material. So uh, our schedule says um, 10.20 is a break downstairs. So we have arrived at 10.20. I, I should say that I, I have to leave tomorrow morning. I wish I could be here to hear the rest of the messages. It seems to me that this is just a great thing to get together, give you a chance to think a little bit and 
maybe get some new information. Well, let me let me review. Now, I'm calling to your attention to the fact that this this these verses that I'm using are addressed to a church. And I don't know how many people there are there, but I know that there were more than two. But the more I studied it, the more I realized that this applies to two or more people. Anywhere, two or more people. Now, to illustrate, I, I was, had a mission executive invite me to take a trip around the world with him. And he was a man that I greatly respected and, honor, and honored. I had traveled widely with him overseas. We had grappled with... Uh, Many, many overseas questions. I was his consultant. And so I really was looking forward to this trip. And it was, we spent almost a year planning it. And we met in Switzerland. And uh, they called our flight. And this was before the runway that they have today. These things you put up to the door. So we had to go out of the, out of the outside and to get to the plane. And we went through a door like that one. And you, there's not room for two people to go through that door. And so I said to him, being a humble consultant, you go first. And he said, no, you go first. And I said, no, you go first. And my buddy and I got hung up at the door. A PhD and a THD. And I finally realized that he was bullheaded and he wasn't going to budge, and so I had to budge. Humble me. <laughs> and so I gave up, and I went through the door first. And we were walking across the pavement. To the, I, I noticed that there was this little narrow ladder going up to the plane. And I said to myself, I am not going up that ladder first. <laughs> Being a humble consultant. And so we got to the ladder, and I said to him, you go first. He said, well, we, had a, we held up the line uh, discussing who would go first. And finally, he gave in, and he went up, and I said to myself, well, he's getting more sensible. <laughs> we got into the airplane, and this is going to be a transatlantic flight, and uh, there's two seats, and I wanted the window seat. Now, how am I going to get the window seat? Now, in this world, you have to think fast. <laughs> and I, I only had from here to you with the fellow in the green shirt to make, come up with a plan and execute it now that's going some but I, I quickly thought of an idea that if I would offer him the window seat that he would turn it down <laughs> and I would now there's a little risk there you understand but there, there are risks in a lot of decisions that you make Anyway, I blurted it out. Why don't you take the window seat? And he said, no, you take the window seat. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> what was the matter with us? Two buddies. You see, this is what happens when you get married. You're not marrying your enemy. You're marrying somebody you think a lot of. And it doesn't take long until you're crosswise. If you don't realize... That one of the dilemmas of, of life is that we are we are self-centered people, and that's why you need a savior. Well, anyway, we looked at each other, and we both agreed that we were going to have a hard time getting around the world. 
And so we decided that we needed a leader. And so we called ourselves together to elect a leader, the two of us. Did you ever have an, a, an election with two people? <laughs> That's what marriage is. Two people making decisions. Well, now, he is the director of the mission. He footed the bill. He invited me. The people were expecting him. They weren't even expecting me. How many of you would vote for me? <laughs> Let me go through that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really isn't very hard to figure out who the leader should have been. And so we decided that he would be the leader. So he started acting like a leader. <laughs> and he started dividing up some of the things we had to do to get around the world. For instance, I got baggage. Now, don't, don't, don't belittle me. Baggage is important. Did you ever get somewhere and your baggage didn't get there? My job was to see that the baggage got to the airplane and off the airplane and into the hotel, and I got hotel relations, and so I was negotiating with the hotels and the busboys and the waitresses, and, you know, uh, he started dividing stuff up like that. He got handling the money. Uh, we didn't have any more trouble getting around the world because we had a plan and we had some leadership and I knew what my job was and he knew what his job was and we didn't have to have a little meeting every time a decision had to be made and a lot of us have that notion I've got to have a feeling of participation in this decision listen what you need is some kind of a sensible organization and drawing up some rules and and just simply sub submitting yourself to those rules. Now, look, for instance, when I say basketball, that tells you all kinds of stuff, doesn't it? Just one word. It tells you what kind of a ball it is. It tells you what kind of a, uh, what the surface is. It tells you what the lines are going to be. It tells you what the rules are going to be. It tells you that uh, there are going to be some referees. A lot of things, just one word, basketball. And the reason that that's uh, uh, fun is because you know what you've got to do. And so this is the way it is in a marriage. You have to have some leadership, and that leadership is you. And your job is to manage this family. Now, a lot of it has to be delegated. There are a lot of things that your wife can do better than you can. For example... I've had to help some folks switch the managing of the money over to the wife because she was a better money manager than the husband. Now, after all, if you have an organization and you have a, a good money manager and a poor money manager, uh, who, who should you choose to manage the money? That seems like such a simple answer to me. The one who has the ability to manage the money. Now, when you have money to manage, you don't do what you please with it. You have some guidelines that should govern how you manage that money. But that's the job. Uh, you want to see to it that you're cheerful, comfortable, relaxed, peaceful man. Here comes this easygoing person. Anybody knows that when they see you coming. And when there's a crisis... You, you, or a decision to be made, you approach it, 
in the typical relaxed man uh, manner that uh, is characteristic of you as a Christian gentleman. And you operate like a Christian gentleman and you don't if you uh, deviate from that, then we all realize that, hey, hey, you don't be managing something. Go back and get yourself in a condition and then come and, and let's proceed. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, if that's true, then fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same... having the same... Love and being of one accord and of one mind. Now let's proceed to verse 3. Very important. Listen. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now I, I believe this is very critical. Uh, our goal is to be like-minded. And I would like to put it this way. In a in the process of coming to a meeting of minds about it, any decision, if I understand that verse, it says, don't fight. You're not looking for a fight. Now, sometimes that's true. Uh, you've been thinking about a decision that you have to make, and she's been thinking about a decision you have to make, and she's been mulling it over, and she's made up her mind, and you've been mulling it over, and you've made up your mind, and you're coming home, and you're going to bring it up tonight, and you could almost print a poster and tack it outside, and the poster would read, Fight Tonight. <laughs> I mean, you're looking for an argument. You see, what we're talking about here is that's not, that's, that you're not looking for an argument. Now, when you realize that you're generating heat, cool it. table it. But we get swept up into these things and the next thing you know you're yelling at each other and that's not how you solve problems. Don't fight. Now that verse also says be unselfish. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. After all, you're not you're not wanting your own way. You're not wanting uh, what you're wanting is a meeting of minds. You see, as a servant of the Lord, you're wanting to come to a meeting of minds. Now, I don't know how to tell you to get there, but I know that you can get there if you're committed to solving this issue. I see. We're not just having a discussion. I, I object to this idea of communicating where you pour out your heart. For no, other, for no reason at all but to pour out your heart. I object to that kind of a discussion. I'm saying the reason for a discussion is to solve something. You hear people say, I want to be understood. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I, we're not talking about being understood. We're talking about coming to a meeting of minds. I've had discussions with my wife where the better I understood her point, the less I thought of it. Isn't that true? Understanding is not what we're talking about. A meeting of minds is what we're talking about. 
And you cannot have your own way and have a meeting of minds. Well, sometimes you can. That's too strong. But many times it's a, it's a, it's a negotiable kind of a thing. Now, there's another point here. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. Listen, did you get that? In lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. Now, what we're talking about in this process is that we are going to esteem each other. Often in the consulting room, by the time they get there to the consulting room, I say to this fellow, describe your wife. And he's ready. I mean, he's got one, two, three, four, five, six gripes about his wife. And when he gets through describing her often, I'm scared. I've got to talk to this lady. <laughs> And in comes this nice lady. She's not the way he described her. And so I say to her, tell me about your husband. She's ready. She's got her six gripes. Of, and these, these are a couple of dedicated, committed opponents. I mean, when she makes her point, he lost his. If he made his point, she lost hers. And you see, this is like a boxing ring. The idea is to defeat your opponent. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about cooperation. I'm not talking about competition. Now, you see, you can at least make up your mind that you're not going to argue with your wife anymore and you're not going to approach her selfishly. And listen, just stop a minute. Remember when you were going with her and you just had to marry her? And let anybody tell you the, let anybody object and you were willing to take on your whole relationship for her? Remember? What did you like about her? Those characteristics are still there. And you know, many times we lose sight of that. Now, I, I'm not talking about closing your eyes to negatives. I'm simply saying you get to the point where you put blinders on and you can't see the whole person anymore. You just see somebody with a, some faults and that's all you can think about is their faults. Now you see, let, me, let me just describe some things. I wrote some things down here that you can... Uh, when I say esteem your wife better than yourself, I don't mean this is a figment of your imagination. I mean that there are indeed some sides of your wife that she thinks she can do better than you. Isn't that right? Well, what are they? You want to keep those in front of you. Now, I wrote some things down. Uh, one of you is better at details than the other. Right? Now, you see, that could have been an ad admirable thing before you were married, and that could become a bone of contention now. One of you is better at math than the other. One may grasp ideas faster than the other. This is one of the characteristics of my wife, is she can put people at ease much more simply than me. This is one of her characteristics. 
uh, one of you is a better decision maker than the other. One of you may be neater than the other. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that we found out with my, with my wife, Eva, uh, she and I would get together to discuss a problem with our children, and we'd very quickly discovered that I could cut through the details and come to a decision much more easily and quickly and realistically than she. That was just a fact. But when I tried to communicate our decision to the kids, I'd start a fight and get a lot of resistance, and she could get it across to them. And I kept scratching my head. That's uh, How come she can get our ideas across and I can't? That's the way she was. She could communicate to the kids. Now, when you've got a good communicator and a poor one, who should communicate? That sounds simple to me. So my wife was the spokesman. And so you asked the kids who runs the house, and they would tell you very quickly, Mom! Who's the head of the family? Dad. But mom runs the house. And she did. If we had if we had discussions, I would discuss it with her, but she was the spokesman. Uh, one of you is more dependable than the other. One of you is more consistent than the other. A better planner, a better organizer, a better money manager, a better enforcer or a better conversationalist. Now, your wife has some qualities. You see, when you're sitting down to negotiate with your wife, you're sitting down to talk to somebody that is really something. Oh, there may be some other... Like, uh, I think of a, a very highly intelligent fellow who is a door slammer. And that just gets her. You can always tell when he comes in the door... Bang! He slams the bathroom door and he slams the bedroom door and slams. And she'd ask him to quit and he'd say, all right, I'm sorry, he'd go in the bathroom, slam. <laughs> now he's brilliant, he's brilliant, but he's a door slammer. Well, so you see, you got, you got some pros and cons about everybody. Uh, one fellow was telling me about their first night. He, uh, his girl used to come to his apartment and straighten it up for him. She could do it in nothing flat, and he didn't mind her coming to straighten up her, his apartment. He thought that was pretty nice. Of course, he messed it up as fast as she left, but he didn't mind her straightening it up. But now they're in the same room, and this guy could turn a room into a disaster in, in a minute. He'd pull off his coat and let it fly pull off his jacket and let it fly. And he'd put off, pull off his shirt and let it fly. And he unbuckles his belt and drops his britches and steps out of them, and as far as he's concerned, they're ready for morning. <laughs> and this was this nice, neat room just a minute ago. And she says, aren't you going to clean it up? Well, that, that never occurred to him. What do you mean, clean it up? What's wrong with it? It's ready for morning. Well, now, you see, this is a very personable, outgoing guy. Re really, really helped her to feel at ease, but he was sloppy. 
So the whole person has a lot of good points and some not so good points. Now this Bible verse, listen, I'm not just talking, I'm not talking psychology book here. This, this verse says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than himself. And you want to esteem your partner. That's the same way it worked when you, you hire somebody. I, I, in order for me to exceed in business, there was only one way I could do it. I had to hire people that were smarter than me. I, I, I had a fellow from a Cornell Hotel School who, who ran our restaurant uh, operation and food operation. And that, was, that involved millions of dollars every year. That guy had a lot of power. And he would use his power. But nobody thought he owned the place. But he had a lot of power. Now, you see, the people didn't think any less of me, the employees, because I, he was the, the manager of the food department. Of, uh, they, everybody knew that I didn't know anything about food, and I knew I didn't know anything about food. Uh, but I also knew that enough to hire somebody that did. So everybody agreed that I was no good at food, but everybody also agreed that I owned the place. And so I had a tr profound respect for that fellow. And I think some of the folks had a profound respect for me that I actually somehow got into a position where I could hire him to run this thing. So they respected me too. And they'd say, how did he do it? And that's not something you pass around, that kind of information. <laughs> and now there's another verse. Esteem one another. Uh, honor. That's an end. Each other's opinion. You see, when you're in a, in a, you're trying to solve a problem, you're going to take your, the other person's opinion as seriously as yours. Now, let me give you a few illustrations. When we moved to Florida, we have this place that fronts on the Atlantic Ocean, and just a row of glass, and there's the ocean. And I say to my wife, isn't that a fantastic view? And she and I agree it's a fantastic view. And uh, so we're like-minded. We are also in agreement that we should have been there together. I said, no, I, I think we should just leave this view. No, I don't want to obstruct this view. And she said, wait a minute. We've got to have curtains and drapes. I said, uh, no, I don't want curtains and drapes. Why do we have to have curtains and drapes? Everybody has curtains and drapes. Well, I don't want any... Now, you can't get any further apart than that. She wants curtains and drapes, and I don't. Now, you can't get any further apart than that. Now, our goal is to come to a meeting of minds, and I respect this person. I honor her, and because she comes up with some dumb ideas once in a while doesn't mean that uh, she's not a good person. 
Well, that was the end of the discussion. Now you see, that was not the solve, that was not the end of the problem. That was just the end of the discussion. Now, when you when you many issues that you talk about, you're not going to settle them today or next week. But you don't have to go around sucking your thumb because your wife didn't agree with you. Now, you want your wife to tell you what she's thinking, don't you? Well, some of you don't, don't, and you know you don't. And you let her know perfectly well that she had better keep her opinion to herself. If she doesn't, unless she wants to deal with you. And that is the worst side of you. Now, you see, if you want your wife's opinion, then you have to create the kind of an atmosphere where you're going to get her opinion. And she wanted drapes and curtains. But as I say, that doesn't have to change your relationship. One time uh, we had a discussion. She said, you know, why don't we go and see what other people do with waterfront apartments? And I fell for that. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) And we visited five places and all five had drapes and curtains. And she said, see... Everybody has drapes and curtains. But why do we have to have... Why can't we do what we want to do in our own house, I said. And her answer was, we are going to do (laughs) what we want to do in our own house. We are going to have drapes and curtains. Well, that was the end of the discussion. That didn't solve anything. That happens sometimes when you have decisions. You see, if she's going to be honest with me and I'm going to be honest with her, I have to admit I have not changed my mind. And she better admit that she has not changed her mind. And you have to be careful that you don't put her in a position where you cause her to lie to you. If you don't agree with me, baby, you'll be sorry. You see, you don't want to make that kind of an implication. Now, you're a couple of serious people and you haven't changed each other's minds. Well, there were other windows, and she had some material once, and she held some up to the front and said, Isn't that gorgeous? And I'll tell you, fellas, it was gorgeous. But I said, We're not going to have it there. Well, there comes a time when everything that could be said has been said. There's nothing more to say. Uh, you know that, don't you? There comes a time when there's nothing more to say unless you repeat what you've already said. Now, that is the time to make a decision. Now, how do you do that? Well, I'll tell you, there's a way to do it. And when I say this in a group of men's meeting, in a men's meeting, they think I'm terrific. And when I say this in a women's meeting, they think I'm awful. But the Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And so I get to make the decision because I happen to fall in that category. I'm the husband. I know. So I did. And we have drapes. (laughs) Now, how come we have drapes? You understand, I'm the managing partner here. My job is to see that this thing goes smoothly and, and that this thing is reasonable and fair. That's my job. When I think about that lady and how she's poured her life into our children 
and in our social life, and I, I, I had an agreement that if I give my wife three hours notice, I could bring anybody home I wanted to any time. And we have done a tremendous lot of entertaining, and, and she has had a ministry around the world, and, and uh, she's kept that house, and, and she looked after my travel arrangements, and she took care of my correspondence, and she took care of my schedule. And when I thought about all of that, I could not uh, justify not having drapes. So we have these dumb drapes. <laughs> but you know, an amazing thing happened. Uh, the sun rises in the east. <laughs> I don't know, I didn't realize <laughs> what happens when the sun comes blazing over the ocean and into your glass window. Listen, you couldn't live there without drapes. Now, if you say I said that, I'll deny it. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to come to a meeting of minds, and our goal was to come to a meeting of minds, you have to be honest, and you have to keep negotiating, and you have to realize that so, well, there comes a time when, when the, the, it's finished and there's no more to say. And then, Now, let me give you a tip. Before you start a discussion, you're the managing partner. Make it clear if there is a deadlock, which one of you will make the decision? You see, you don't have to make all of the decisions. There are some areas where your wife is quite capable, especially if you have a, a quick-thinking wife who, who needs to have some authority and some power. If you're a sensible managing partner, you're going to give her some. Where she has some areas where she makes the decisions. Now, you can have all the meetings you want. You can change these guidelines anytime you want. But I'm just suggesting that. But when you have a discussion and there's a decision in the offing, decide in advance who has the last word in case of a deadlock. They say, I'm assuming that you're a nice man and that you're, uh, got, and you're friendly, the two of you are friendly together. And you're not looking for a fight, and you're not looking for your own way, and you esteem this lady, and you respect her judgment. See, that's what we're talking about here. So in that kind of an atmosphere, we're not talking about a couple of spoiled brats screaming at each other. We're not talking about a couple of bullheaded, hostile people. So there are some conditions that we have to meet, and I believe it's critical that we understand what those conditions are. Now, we also had to design a kitchen in that place. Now, I don't, want to, I don't know anything about kitchens. I don't intend to know anything about kitchens. I don't want to know anything about kitchens. I don't want to be near a kitchen. <laughs> but we needed a kitchen, and my wife knew kitchens. She liked kitchens. She, uh, now, who would you pick to design a kitchen? This seems so obvious that she ought to call the shots on that kitchen. And so we decided on a budget, and, and she got the job of designing that kitchen. Now listen, when we, we had many, many discussions about that kitchen. But this is an important point. When you have a discussion involving a decision, you need to be clear in your mind who is making the decision. Are you the decision maker, or are you influencing somebody else's decision? Now, you just get that straight, that'll, solve, that'll save you all kinds of difficulty. Are you the decision maker, 
or are you influencing in somebody else's decision? Now, you see, when my wife and I were negotiating the kitchen, she was the decision maker. Uh, she asked me for my input, fine, but I was talking to the decision maker. Those things happen. You know, when, when she died and I married Marcy, then in the meantime I sold these ice cream parlors and we had some very expensive Tiffany lamps in these places. And there were eight of them, and so there were a couple of hundred Tiffany lamps. And I thought I wanted one of those for a souvenir, and so I scanned them all, and out of all those Tiffany's, I chose the one I liked the best. And that proudly hung in her dining room. So enter Marcy. And Marcy says, that's got to go. My specially selected Tiffany has got to go. Well, she even brought an interior decorator in, and the interior decorator said, I'm sorry, sir, but you realize that that Tiffany has got to go. <laughs> I said, I don't care what it looks like. That's my Tiffany. <laughs> well, you know, after a while, um, well, to make a long story short, the Tiffany is in my son's dining room. <laughs> well, you're not going to mess up a marriage over a Tiffany, are you? So those are some of the things that you need to think about. I, I think you're very critical. Oh, men want to talk about communication and sex. This is not a marital problem. This is something that a marital problem will reveal if, if you have that problem, or if she does. Assuming then that that is happening, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love and being of one accord and of one mind, and let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And uh, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. And look not every man in his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And you proceed in that fashion. And I think you'll find that you'll be smoothing out some of your rough spots. Well, time to have a stand-up. And then we'll talk about raising kids. Your soul, more completely than any other, is parenthood. Now, this is one of the areas where decision-making is uh, <coughs> continuous, constant. And so I want to, I hope I can get through this uh, sufficiently so that I can give you some answers. I'm afraid I stimulated all kinds of questions rather than uh, giving you answers, and that's how a psychologist makes their living, <laughs> raising questions. <coughs> no, I hope I've given you some help. But one of my favorite areas is this area of guiding children. Uh, I'm a little, not, more, not a little, I'm worried about the state of affairs when I watch children. For instance, I, I do some personnel selection work for a mission board. I'm talking about people graduating from seminary and graduate school. I'll tell you, we're graduating a bunch of brats. 
these people have made their own, made up their minds, their, their mothers and fathers, let them do what they want. They choose their own courses in high school. They choose their own courses in, in uh, college and graduate school. They decide whether they want A's or B's. They, they just simply don't have any experience in cooperation. Teachers in high school and junior high school are telling me that the kids are becoming increasingly, noticeably unmanageable year by year. Camp people will tell you that the kids that you that come to camp become increasingly difficult to deal with year by year. And this this is serious, I think. Now, if you've got some kids and you do right by your kids, I believe that you'll be an oddball. If you do the right thing by your kids, I'm saying, you're going to be an oddball. But so anyway, let me plunge into this and give you some idea. Uh, I've helped a lot of folks bring some control into their families, and this is the way I've done it, and so I want to share it with you. Now, number one, you have to be worthy of respect. You need to expect your children to pay attention to you. In Philippians 4, chapter 7, the first time I read this, I thought to myself, you couldn't write a more egotistical statement than this one if you tried. Those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that is an egotism. Philippians 4, verse 7. Is it 9? 9? 9? I'm sorry. Those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Now you think that over, and on second thought, that's, not, that, that's, that's really necessary. You, 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 you have to be able to say that. That's a minimum requirement. to be worthy of respect. First Corinthians two five, your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we need to have um, some reassurance that our inner life meets some of the standards of the scriptures. For instance, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Don't you children need a, don't you need a, jo- a dose of kindness in your heart? Do you find yourself being pretty unkind and, and not the least bit gentle to your kids? Some of us say, well, if the kids would behave, I'd be a gentleman. And so we assign the responsibility for our own mental health to our preschool kids. There's another thing, uh, cheerful. Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. And peaceful. Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Did you get that? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. 
Colossians 3.15. First Thessalonians 5.16. And so, to make a generalization, what we're talking about is a friendly, relaxed, stable, predictable, cooperative couple. And this is uh, preparation for guiding children. Now the response between partners. Let me give you some words. Affection. Goodwill. Admiration. Friendship. Agreement, consistency, submission. What we're talking about is the management team. And this management team has the job of growing some babies and making healthy adults out of them. And so the management team is what I'm talking about. Now, uh, I think these are some convictions that you need to have. One of them is to expect honor. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of promise, that it may do well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, I've watched this so many times where parents simply do not expect their children to honor them. Just a few weeks ago, I pointed out to a lady, she said to her uh, junior high school daughter, close the car door, and the junior high school daughter ran off, and, and mother closed the car door. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but what's, that, what's going on here? This lady does not expect any response from that kid. She doesn't expect that child to do that. I see, the simplest thing to do is close the door, but the important thing to do is to see that that kid closes the door. I was in standing in line at a ticket office, and there was this big, heavy-set, 250-pound guy standing in front of me in a little, tiny two-year-old maybe three. And the kid said, I want to go over there. And father said in his bass voice, <clears throat> you stay here. It wasn't, a mo I don't think, a matter of a minute. And that, li that weak little kid unhitched her hand from his big mitt, which was like that, and was gone. And his big boot said, come back here. Now that child was just as secure as anybody could be. That that big boot did not mean a word of what he said. And we simply don't expect our kids to pay any attention to us. And it's so much easier to let it go and not uh, do anything about it. And so you have uh, really a tough time. 
listen to this, Proverbs 19, 26 to 27. He who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. You see, you want to see to it that your child pays attention to its mother. Your mother told you to do that. And you want to see to it that this child pays attention to her father if you're a mother. We see the problem is a lot of times what mother requires from the kid is something that the father disagrees with in the first place. And so what you have often is, a, is two competing adults over is it going to be plan A when it comes to the child or plan B when it comes to the child. And many times that's the way it is. When dad is home, plan A is in effect. And when mom is home, plan B is in effect. And when they're both home, who knows? And these kids get pretty good at playing one against the other. Now, another conviction. Training is a parental responsibility. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, what does that say? I say that that means that the way what you allow a child to do or not do is an adult decision and not a child's. Now, I, I submit to you that that is the reverse of what you see everywhere. Everywhere I go, I listen to a mother say to a little bitty child that can hardly talk yet, would you like to eat your peas? I mean, discussing diet with this kid, and this kid can't even talk. <laughs> would you like to sit down? Would you like to come in? Don't you think you ought to study? I mean, we, we, we consult with our kids. I think it's not surprising that by the time the kid is 16, they conclude that my folks don't know nothing. They've been asking me for help all these years. <laughs> <clears throat> Parents are supposed to train children. Now, you can read in books where it says there's a built-in innate wisdom in your child and you got to find out what it is and you gear in line with it and you'll be okay. I say hogwash. What you, what you raised is a little sinner. A mean, nasty kid. Do you know any other kind? You let two, two year olds you put two of those together, two of them, you see if that isn't true, and you put a couple of toys in between and go away and leave them alone, they'll be beating each other up in ten minutes. Children need guidance. Now, I think another conviction is that training is no substitute for a savior. Now, there's a little term that I like to use that I use in this book uh, on children. This I want to enjoy my children called Confident Expectation. And what I, what I mean by Confident Expectation is that you need to have the conviction 
that what you are requiring of your child is fair. Now, you understand, this is a decision to make between you and your wife. You don't consult the kids about this. But I'm not saying that you don't, dis uh, you don't consult kids at all. I think you should consider their tastes and their interests and their limitations and their skills and their wishes. And you can listen and negotiate and collaborate and interview and take attitude surveys and you can have an open door policy. But management is an adult activity and not a child's. Well, of course you ought to know all you can about them. But the decision about your kid is yours and not theirs. Now, you should have more sense than your kids. Now, a 16-year-old that says, Dad, I've thought it through and this is what I decided. The only problem with that is that that 16-year-old doesn't know what he doesn't know. You know more than... Listen, if he's 16, you've lived 16 years longer than that. You should have learned something in those 16 years that could benefit that child. Unless you've been just reinventing the wheel and acting like a kid yourself. It seems so obvious to me that uh, guiding children is an adult activity. You see, I'm talking about somebody who cares about your kids, you love them, you want the best for them, uh, you're not trying to make life miserable for them, you understand that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, you understand that these little sinners need a Savior, but in the meantime, your job is to guide them and hold them steady, and sometimes you really got to hang on. A lot of folks say, oh, go ahead and you learn. I say, no, you don't let your children go somewhere where they are not supposed to go. The confident expectation of what you expect and require of your children is fair and reasonable and in their best interests. Now, if you have that conviction, sir, you will do whatever you need to do in order to make it happen. And so you've got to be making up your mind what's best for your kids. Uh, you can listen to them and hear their views, but the decision is yours and not theirs. Now, the mechanics of guiding children. Well, you've got to set some limits. Now, what's the purpose of setting limits? I say you set the limits. And the purpose of setting limits is to help the parents and children to know what is expected of them. There's so many children today, they, they're lost. They, don't, uh, they can't find out what the boundaries are at home. I remember we had a neighborhood kid would come over to our house and throw the blocks around and I would sit it down and, and uh, make him clean up the blocks and she, I'd say, clean up the blocks and this kid would say, I won't! Well, uh, there's no little kid going to tell me that they won't. They're just too small. Now, what's my goal? 
What's my goal? What do you think? Huh? No, I'm going to get some blocks picked up, that's all. Now, how's the quickest way to get some blocks picked up? You really understand I'm a nice man. I'm not the kind of guy who says, you little boy, I'm going to turn your heart off. No, no, that's no good. If, if you have that kind of an attitude, leave the poor kid alone and take care of yourself. No, I'm a cheerful man. <laughs> and I'm, I'm benevolently going to help this little brat to clean up some blocks. Listen, I'm not trying to be funny. Now, how's the best way to do that? Well, the first thing you do is catch the kid. <laughs> And with my hand and her hand, we start picking up blocks. She says, I hate you. Well, I think that was true. <laughs> what am I doing? What's my goal? I'm picking up blocks, don't remember? I'm not giving this kid lectures on the fruits of the spirit. <laughs> I'm picking up blocks. She said, I'm going to tell my mother on you, and I'm going to go home and never, ever come back. And I said, I hope that's true. <laughs> but you know, she always came over to our house to play. You know why? Because she could find some boundaries at our house. At her house, if she screamed loud enough or had a temper tantrum bad enough or potted long enough, she could always do what she pleased. She couldn't find any boundaries at home. You see, when you set limits, it helps the parents and the children to know what is expected of them. Now, the second thing, the uh, limits give you a framework for guidance and training. You see, when you're through, you don't throw blocks. That's one rule. The other one is when you're through, you pick them up. That gives me a framework for dealing with this kid. You're through with the blocks, you pick them up. I won't. Oh, yes, you will. I'm going to help you. There's no way that you can keep from picking up those blocks. <laughs> You've got to succeed. I'll see to that. Uh, another thing that gives the basis for supervision and limits give you, makes life predictable. And another thing, it, it's a test of parental unity. And another point, children have a basis for choice. I will obey, I won't obey. And they know that they're right or that they're wrong. And a kid that's wrong should feel wrong. Kids don't know what's right or wrong anymore, hardly do they. They ought to feel right and they ought to feel wrong, either if somebody's in the room or not. You know, I say to a lot of teenage kids, you know, if your mother has a standard that you clean up your room and you don't clean up your room and you go home, and a lot of the kids don't like it at home. One of the reasons why you don't like your home is all you've got to do is walk into the house and look at your mother. She doesn't need to say anything, and all you've got to do is look at her, and she is a reminder that you are a rebel. She doesn't have to say anything. 
But, you know, you try to make life pleasant for your kid. Well, listen, as long as you have a standard that he cleans up his room and he didn't clean up the room, even though you don't enforce it, you remind that kid that he's a rebel and that you don't care. Now, you don't have to do anything. All you got to do is appear. And that's what happens. Now listen, if you don't want him to clean up the room, then wipe off the limit and say, do what you please in your room. But if you want him to clean up the room, then you also have to see that he does it. We had a rule that said, make your bed before you come out of the bedroom. And my son would come out of the bedroom, and my wife would ask him if he made the bed, and he'd say no. And then go back and make your bed. Sometimes she had to march him back. Sometimes we both had to help him. How long do you keep at it? Well, in our case, it took 20 years. <laughs> How long do you supervise your employees? When are your employees going to get to the place where they don't need any more supervision? I'll ask you, when? Huh? Never. You will supervise adults and you don't want to supervise these kids. Setting limits. Now, I'm assuming agreement between you and your wife. And your boundaries ought to be as few as possible. And adjust to change whenever necessary. And they should be based on the judgment and agreement of both parents. We're talking about limits. And as I say, you could consider their tastes and their interests and their limitations and their skills and their wishes and you could consult and listen and negotiate and collaborate and interview and take attitude surveys. You can let your children have all the input they want but the decision is yours. The buck stops with you. Now, number three, you give as much leeway and freedom as possible. I, I like to talk about freedom as the length of the leash from a chosen stake. Here's a stake and here's a leash. And they got all that freedom. Okay? Now, they can handle a little more freedom, you lengthen the leash. If they can't handle it, you shorten the leash. But freedom is the length of the leash from a chosen stake. Give them as much leeway as you can. Now, setting limits, let me illustrate. When you go, I'm a football fan, and uh, my team is the uh, University of Michigan. And we have a stadium that seats 105,000 people. And you go into that stadium anytime you want to, and the field always looks the same. You don't expect to have a wavy boundary. And you say, how come you got a wavy boundary? Well, our, our linemen uh, were not in the mood for straight lines today. <laughs> now, you wouldn't want to force these fellas to make straight lines, would you? 
nice man like you, you're not going to frustrate these linemen, are you? Now listen, you go in that football stadium, it always looks the same. And you don't, you don't see uh, all these football players come running out from under the stands and one's got a tracksuit on. Why, why a tracksuit? He, he wasn't in the mood for putting on his <laughs> uniform. No, you expect them all to come out in a uniform. Don't you? Limits. Now, you say the visiting team are going to obey the rules of the football rule book. You can predict that. And you can, and our, our team as we will also. We're, same rules. We're not arguing about rules. We didn't come here to fight about rules. We came to play football. And football assumes some rules. So you start playing, and you have a referee and an umpire. And um, how many? How many do you have nowadays? About six fellows in striped shirts, trying to keep that game going. And you step out of the out of line, and there's somebody there blowing a whistle right in front of the whole stadium. I don't, you know, step over the... Why would you want to embarrass a football player in front of all those people? <laughs> and then you announce it to the whole stadium. Number 55. Clipping. Now, what do you do? Everybody balls out number 50. No, no, you just pay the penalty and get on with the game. That's all you do. Well, now, when it comes to raising kids, we have to teach them something about cooperation. For instance, we had a family room. Now, in the family room, we had um, blacks and games and an easel and some push-and-pull toys. You see, you have to teach people, little kids, how to make decisions, but you want to put them in a controlled situation for them to make decisions. Now, they could play with any kind of block they felt like. And if they didn't want to play with blocks, they didn't need to play with blocks. But this was a controlled situation in the family room. You don't take the blocks out of the family room. You can do anything you want in the family room with blocks and games and an easel and push and pull toys, except you don't throw things. And you put things back when they're finished. Now that's the family room. So the kid comes wandering into the living room with, no, you don't, no, no, you can't do that. Put them back. I won't. Oh, come on, put them back. If you put them back, I'll give you a cookie. I don't want to put them back. And then, well, so you drift off, and the kid doesn't need to put them back. So you don't want to set your little deer. Listen, that little deer of yours is a mean little rebel calling your bluff, and you just flunked. I won't put him back. You see, a little kid can't say that. No, mother has to do. I'm talking about sweet mother. All she has to do is grab the kid by the hand and march her into the game room and deposit the blocks, it's finished. Training a child in the way that he should go. 
you will take the blacks back into the game room. That's training them in the way that they should go. Oh, come on, please. Pretty please, won't you take the blacks back? You want to take the blacks back, don't you? No. You see, you save yourself all that conversation by just grabbing the kid by the hand and marching them in. What are you teaching them? You mean what you say. Yeah, you're a friendly lady, but you mean what you say. And so now we're in the living room. Now in the living room, we had a record player and, a, and a, some selections of records and some books and some selections of books. Now we had a few rules, like the volume of the record player is so-and-so. And you can pick any record you want to out of this pile. And who controls the pile? The adults. I tell you, folks, if there's anything in this world where kids need some help, it's in picking out what they listen to by way of music. At our house, you didn't have all that. We had uh, semi-classical stuff. You know, when you come into our house, it should be a quiet house. Nice background music. I don't like it here. Well, I'm, I like it here. <laughs> I'm deciding what you like around here. Not you. I'll go to my friends. Go ahead. You can make all the noise you want over there. Here, you calm down. This is a haven here. I'll never come home. Oh, yes, you will come home. Well, you see, you can't say that. All I got to do is go and get you. So you cheerfully go and pounce on him. <laughs> and you drag him home. And, say, I don't want to go. and you understand that they don't want to go. That's okay. They don't have to agree with you. But they're going home. Why are they going home? Because you're, this is a haven. They don't think so. You don't have to convince them. You better see to it between you and your husband that this is a haven. Every once in a while, the kids would, would come home and would hear the wrong kind of music on the record player, and the kids would say, well, my friend brought a record over. We've got to be hospitable, don't we? Uh-uh. Shut it off. I see they're, che they're testing the limits. No, you control the records. You can, you can play any record you want on this pile. Now, there's another pile here. These are fancier records. You can't touch those. If you want to listen to one of those, you ask Mama to put them on the pile. You see, you're teaching the kid to make decisions, but they're controlled decisions. Sure, you have to let them, sure, you have to give them an opportunity to exercise their minds, but you can do it in a safe area. So we had, we had the, um, the kitchen. Now, there's certain things you do in the kitchen. Kids would come in the kitchen and say, Mama, I'm bored. Okay, so Mama was ready. Here's a carrot. Scrape carrots with me. So I'd come home, the kids are scraping carrots. I don't want to scrape carrots. All right, peel a potato then. I don't want to peel a potato. All right, then here's a toothpick. Pick the colander holes clean. 
And out come home, and here's a couple of kids with toothpicks picking the colander holes. <laughs> See, you don't like it in the game room? Then you can go into the family, into the living room. You don't like it in there? You come in the kitchen. You don't like it in the kitchen? Go in the basement. Now, we had some rules in the basement, too. We had a bench, and we had some, a saw, a real saw that they could saw with. You say, well, don't they saw their fingers? Yes, they do. Fingers heal. And you learn after a while to keep your fingers away from saws. And we had nails, and they could hammer stuff. One of the, one of the best, tool, one of the best uh, little things we ever did for our kids was to put a piano box in the basement. Just a common, ordinary piano box. And they'd play in that thing. Today it was a skyscraper, and tomorrow it was a submarine, and the next day it was a tank, and uh, they'd attack each other, and they had more fun with that piano box. And uh, then we had a swing down there that was hanging from the rafters, and those are some things. Oh, you don't like the basement? Go on outside and play. And so outside we also hit some stuff. You see, you don't take the stuff from the basement to the den. Basement stuff stays in the basement. You see what I'm saying? You have to establish some boundaries. Now, once you do that, you also have to supervise because these kids are always testing you and always trying to slip by the boundaries just like we do. Now, let's take church. We had some rules about church. You go to church twice on Sunday. And, you, and prayer meeting every week, and you sit with the family. I don't want to sit with the family. So it's, it's okay. You don't have to want to sit with the family. All you got to do is sit with the family. <laughs> you see, we're not trying to... We're training these kids. You cannot change their minds. You cannot do the work of the Holy Spirit. You hold these kids steady while... And that's why I take them to church to expose them to uh, what the Lord can do for them. I remember one of my teenage daughters said, I'm not going to prayer meeting. Well, of course, that sure she's going to prayer meeting. That's, not, that's uh, uh, debatable, but it's not negotiable. It's, you just go to prayer meeting. Well, I won't go. Well, so we had to help her. Now, the first thing we had to do was get her shoes on. <laughs> That's awfully hard. It took both of us to get her shoes on. And then we had to get her up out of the chair and her knees wouldn't work. And she was, as we marched her to the car, she was saying, I won't go, I won't go, I... And it was hard when your knees don't work to get them in the car. But we got her in the car. You say, well, what's my goal? What? We're going to church. That's all. Keep your mouth shut and do your work. <laughs> My work is to get her to church. Well, when we got to church, there was one of her friends out on the sidewalk, and she bounded out of the car, and well, her friend had no idea how we got her there. <laughs> now, on the way home, she said, could we stop and have some ice cream? Well, you know, I like ice cream. And why shouldn't I have some ice cream? Because she didn't want to go to church? Why should I punish me? Because she didn't want to go to church. <laughs> of course, uh, let's have some ice cream. You see, I, we did our work and so finished. It's done. 
help him. I had a, my son uh, one time announced that he was going out to the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong crowd. And he's not going to do that. He just don't do that. You know, a couple of days before that, a lady was saying, you know, what do you do? I, I tell my daughter she can't go on. She just walks right past me and out she goes. What are you going to do? Well, I said, well, you could get between her and the door. And so I took my own advice. My son announced that he was going out anyhow. I'm going. Well, so I tried to see, what's my job? Help him stay home. That's my job. He was going to the wrong place with the wrong crowd at the wrong time. What's my job? Help him stay home. So I get between him and the door, and he's from me to the fellow in the green shirt away, and he announces that he's about to remove me from the door. Well, now, how much help is this guy going to need? I don't know, but I will know in just a few, minutes, a few seconds. And I, I want to tell you, he needed an awful lot of help. <laughs> By the time I helped him stay home, we were both tired and... <laughs> and we were, we were even bruised, both of us. I mean, if you like contact sports, you like parenthood. Well, you know, I used to play football. Now, when you play football and you contemplate a season of football, what's going to happen is you're going to take an unmerciful beating for two and a half hours every Friday. That's football. Great game. <laughs> I've had somebody splatter me. I'd get up and say, good tackle. And we admired him. People cheer. And then he say, don't touch your babies. Cruelty if you touch your babies. Football isn't cruelty. I've been in a game where I was so battered at the end of the game that I was breathing dust and I didn't even bother to move. I just breathed dust. <laughs> I remember my buddy was laying over there, <laughs> and I rolled over to him, and we helped each other up, and, and we staggered to the locker room, and, and we said, wasn't that a great game? <laughs> and people say, don't touch your kids, that's cruelty. I remember when my kids were small, I used to have a little ritual, I'd lay on the floor and a rug and put them on the bowels of my feet and boost them through the air and they'd land on the couch. Went to had a built-in gymnasium. Well, one day one of the kids missed the couch. <laughs> I mean, that's the equivalent of taking a, a three-year-old and dropping him like that. And that kid jumped up and said, do it again, buddy, do it again. Oh, how do you like that? <laughs> and the other two kids said, do it to me too. <laughs> Oh, 
I went, isn't that something? So I thought I'd experiment a little bit. I said, hold out your hand. They held out their hand. <laughs> they thought that was a more, more fun. I'm beating these kids. <laughs> Listen, fellas, there's a lot of difference between physical pain and punishment. Physical pain can be a delightful thing. I would gladly fracture my skull for my teeth. I was ready to risk a broken back or a broken leg or a black eye. I, I meant it very proudly went home, I remember, with a black eye. I did it for my team, and I was just as proud of myself as I could be with my black eye for my team. Listen, there's a lot of times when your children are going to need some physical help. The idea is setting limits, and you train your children in the way that they should go, and supervision implies that you're going to help them stay within the boundaries. And I submit to you that your children are going to need your help the most these days, in their late teens and early twenties. That's when they're going to want your help the least, and that's when most of their buddies don't get any help at all. And you're going to, your kids are going to play with kids who have no boundaries or maybe not even have anybody at home. And you better know where your kids are, and they better not be in empty houses. Raising kids is a full-time job. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about a, a nice, friendly man <laughs> and, a friend, and a friendly lady, and the two of you are friends, and you're on the same team. And you're going to get together, and you're going to decide what's best for your beloved children. And I, I tell you, I feel very comfortable about that. I don't think there's anybody better qualified than two people that meet, meet those conditions to decide what's best for their children. And then you keep, and then you do what you need to do to make it happen. Confident expectation implies that what you are requiring of your children is fair and reasonable on a management level. And then you will do whatever you need to do in order to make it happen. And you know, I listen, I'm not going to stand aside and watch my beloved son go out into the night to the wrong place with the wrong crowd at the wrong time, if I can help it. I'm talking about my beloved son. Now, one lady was telling me, and then I'll quit, and now all of that I go into in these books and these tapes, so you can get those.